We're here gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, and, uh, and I want to welcome you. If you're new, my name is uh, Tony, and I'm pastor here at LEFC. And we are beginning, last week we began a series uh, called Post Tenebrous Lux, and that is Latin for After Darkness Light. And the reason why we've chosen that as a title, which we typically don't use Latin here, um, but the reason why we chose the title is because that literally was the motto of the Reformation, after darkness light, but spoken in Latin. And the reason why we're dealing with that subject now is because 500 years ago, in 1517, and on October 31st, the 95 theses were, were posted on the door of a Wittenberg church by Martin Luther. And that literally changed the dynamic uh, and the, tra the trajectory of the church. Because up to that point, the church was one universal church, which honestly is the ideal for God. Luther himself was a Catholic priest, and he posted this 95 Theses with the, the intent to change the church from within. He did not want to see a split of the church, but he knew the church needed to change. And the reason why the church was considered in a place of darkness was because for several hundred years, post the conversion of Constantine, the Roman Caesar who made Christianity literally the religion or the exact faith of the Roman Empire, when that happened, it centralized the church in Rome, and, and it enjoyed great favor of spreading the gospel throughout the world. So there was good to that centralized church. But then something happened in the process of that, is that the, the, the centralized leadership in Rome began to corrupt. And the dark ages of the church, and even the dark ages of society, uh, as, as a part of all of mankind, began to happen. And the reason for that is that it became a centralized of the knowledge of the scriptures and very little knowledge of the scriptures to the common people. What ended up happening is they made an edict from Rome saying that all scripture is to be written in Latin alone and to be taught in Latin only. And that created an ignorant faith, an ignorant following of the faith because of this Latin, which was not the common language of the people, keeping the Word of God separate from them. Another thing to also understand is that the original scriptures, at least in the New Testament, was written in Koine Greek. And Koine Greek, it means common Greek. It was the common spoken language at the time when, when the Greek language was used to give the scriptures that we have accessible to us now through the Septuagint. And so it was meant to be in the common people's hands so that all people can be enlightened, not dark to what God would want of your life, but rather to know what God wants to speak into your life. And so for hundreds of years, the church sat and only heard the word of God read in Latin and taught in Latin, which then meant the people would be dependent on their understanding of Scripture based on whatever a clergy member might say to them. And, and thus began a very ignorant people that merely 
identified themselves as Catholic, but were not in, them, in and of themselves people of faith. They had grown cold and dark-hearted. And, and this isn't uh, uncommon to just their day and age. I, two weeks ago, I was in Spain, and Spain considers itself the most Catholic country in the world. It wasn't until 1993 that it was even legal to be a Protestant follower of Jesus Christ in that, that country. And many of you might know your church history to know that, that in response to the movement of the Reformation that began 500 years ago, that many people were killed just for saying that the Scripture is meant to be in your hands, and we want you to know what God asks of you, and that, that there's a relationship to be had between you and God. And they lost their lives because of that faith. I stood in a spot in Vienna where 20,000 Protestants were burned at the stake, and there is a, an approach in history to dramatize that as being a good thing. They stamped out the Protestant movement, the movement of getting the scriptures in the hands of people, and they think it was a good thing. You know, the Inquisition that was, their whole role on behalf of the Catholic Church was to stamp out this Protestant movement. You think that, that that's something that just ages ago well, it was, a, like I told you, 1993 was when Protestantism was finally allowed in Spain. Well, you might want to know that the last person killed by the Inquisition by burning of the stake publicly was in 1973. Can you imagine if they were to do that today with social media being so accessible? They would have to stamp that out. But yet, when that happened, the church glorified this, saying we are still pure, keeping things the way they are. And they said that, that Rome had caved because Rome made it legal for Protestants to be able to, uh, to read their scriptures. And, and also, it was an edict of the Pope that said that the scriptures can now be translated out of Latin. And you are allowed to teach out of other languages. And that happened in the early 60s, but yet Spain was holding. We're going we're gonna to stay pure to the faith. Imagine what that would do to a people Centuries now, Spain did not have the scriptures in their own language. Not knowing, merely being identified. Spain currently has 90% of its people claiming that they are Catholic. Only 5% of those people even attend sometimes in the church in a year's time. 90% claim to be Catholic. So they identify themselves, perhaps because they were infant baptized into the faith. But beyond that, they are not practicing any kind of faith. They merely identify. That's what happens when the faith becomes something cold or dark or inaccessible. You just merely identify. Are we any different in America? 85% of America still claims to be identified as Christian. Do we believe that? I mean, when you think 85% of a country is Christian, then you would think the marks of it would be everywhere. Can we see that in the leadership of our country? Can we see that in the way our media looks at the worldview and the way it accounts news? Can we see it by the way people behave in an ongoing manner in just society? Can we see it as being the primary traits of the family unit? 85%? Not likely, but somehow they still identify as Christian. How did we get there? 
It's because we identify something as being a mark upon us, but it is not something that we have a relationship with. And that's one of the significant aspects that are elusive. We're going to look at this word repent that was very significant upon the heart of Luther and how he was looking at the church and trying to understand and discern how the church had gone through centuries of darkness and wanting to know how it got there so that he can resend them into the light of God's word. And so there were some key things that he says up front. And we're going to be doing something completely different this morning. Normally we choose a text and try to park there and occasionally we bring in other texts to support it just because we don't want you having to turn everywhere. Today we are going to be flipping pages or if you're on a Bible app on your phone, you're going to be hitting the arrows to the right and to the left fairly often. So having said that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, that would be the first book of the New Testament. So it would be in the latter third of your Bibles. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, the ushers would be glad to provide you one right now. And you're not going to ever really want to shut your Bible if you have a physical Bible in front of you. If you're using an app, you're going to want to keep it fairly lit up, okay? So here we go. So to understand... This idea of why the church went dark and what Luther felt was one of the key issues with the church in regards to this darkness is to see the first three points of the 95 Thesis. So here is the first one. Number one, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, this is found in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. So Martin Luther starts off. If you're going to make a statement to the church that you think needs to cleanse the church, it, it's going to create a massive change, where do you begin? He's got 95 points to make. That would be very long if it was one sermon. So, but he's making his first point to be that of repentance, starting with Jesus Christ saying, repent. Therefore, he willed that the entire life of a believer is to be one of repentance. Secondly, the second thesis is this. This word cannot be understood, this word repentance, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Okay, so let me explain that. Some of you probably have not been exposed to some of these terms. But penance being that if you sinned, you can go to a clergy member, a priest, and you can confess to whatever that sin is. And then that priest can then prescribe a means by which you then can be made right before God. So it might say, well, if you give this much of an indulgence, in other words, money, and if you then say so many Hail Marys or whatever, it can be many different things. They would then say, if you do that, then you will find that your sin is covered. So again, first point, Luther's saying the key word to seeing things change and the church becoming light again is repentance. And he wants to make sure you understand that repentance is not something that can be done for you by another. It can't be done for you by another. It is something that is within you, not something that can be prescribed upon you. So then number three, again, the third point, out of 95, he says this. So this word, repentance, does not mean solely 
inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. That may be the first time I've ever said the word mortification on the stage. It's not a common term. But basically saying that, that it's a destruction, a, a, a getting rid of, an annihilation of the flesh. It's, it's a process of getting rid of the flesh. So he's stating that not only is the key word repentance that, God, that Christ wills upon us, but this is something that is personal to you, not that can be prescribed or done for you by a clergy member. And it is not something that is merely enter. It is also something that affects the outer. It, it, it changes how you live. Therefore, putting to death certain things in your life that are not of God, but rather of the flesh or of sin. Now, having said this, Luther observes something that, that's really important to understand. You see, repentance... While it, it is a term that they understood as clergy members, it was something that, quite frankly, was not understood initially by the culture because, again, they relied purely upon the conversations with clergy because they were not taught about repentance and they could not read about repentance. So, hence... He's having to describe for them that, that this, this term that they might be aware of actually is something that is both inner and outer. Because, again, there is meaning to terms. But Luther wanted to make sure that something that he had, pre, that he had seen as prevalent would be addressed. He wanted to move against this idea of just being Catholic and actually move into something where it is Christian, where we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, and that the gospel is changing us. He did not want to see an unchanged person. To just simply say Christian in America, but there is no change, merely is a label. It is not a relationship that changes you or changes your standing before God. And, and Luther wanted to make sure people understood that they were in need of a change of understanding in this because their soul depended upon it. The next thing I think we need to, to notice about these first three points is that he believed that repentance could not be accomplished by the absolvement of sin by a clergy member. In other words, if we tried to practice the idea of confessional uh, here in this church, the, you're not going to find in Scripture that I have the ability to forgive your sins on your behalf. I don't have that ability. As much as I would like to try to help you with that, I can guide you, I can point you, but I can't do anything for you to change your standing before God. I can assist, but I cannot do. And so in this, he is basically creating a different role for clergy than what had been in existence for hundreds of years. When I was in Spain, there was a, a church in Sagunza, and this, this, um, this cathedral in Sagunza, Spain, was built over 500 years. Families were given nobility based on taking on the task of building different portions of that, of that, that cathedral. And if they, if they died, then the next generation would continue forward on the work. And if they died without an heir, then a red line was put through that section of the church and a new family line was given nobility and given the opportunity to build that church. 
They were given standing in society by, by what they were allowed to do in the cathedral. This cathedral was truly the center of wonder in the, in the small town of Sagunsa. When I walked in that cathedral, it truly was amazing. It was beautiful. It, it, it was like things I've never seen before in there, but yet it had images that said, Christian, but it had other images that I wasn't sure what it said. But one thing that was very striking to me as I was walking around this cathedral was that there were all these confessional booths at different places, and they were labeled from one to, I think there was over 15 to 16 of these things, and they were all labeled. And so if you came in and there was a priest there for confessional, they would tell you which confessional booth to go to, and then you would have to find it based on the map. And so then you would go and you would get inside this box and then that, or, and the priest would be there and then you would share your confessions with them and then they would give you the prescription, here's what you need to do, and then you would be absolved. Still being practiced to this day. And Luther is saying, listen, there is nothing the clergy can do for you. And this is a clergy who is also a Catholic priest. So he's even changing his own job description. He is truly taking on the norms of his own church. And he was wanting to see it change and abide by the scriptures that were given. But in this journey of seeing this, Luther then also said, believed that repentance then was the critical part, the understanding of it was the critical part of faith in turning one's life both inwardly and outwardly from sin towards God. See, here's where the definition of repentance means something. In the Greek, Kone Greek, common language, accessible to all when it was written, it means a changing of one's mind. Now, some have gone on to take it that that means that, you, that repentance only is about thinking differently. When you see the use of it in Scripture that is just not capable, that it would be an odd way to look at that term as merely just being a change of thinking. No, it's referring to a change internally and externally, a full transformation of an individual. I mean, the mind is what controls everything, does it not? It controls the inner way we think, and it controls by the way we act. And so the mind is a great term to be able to use about the whole man, not any part left untouched within us or on the outside of us that is not controlled by the mind. And so to, to choose this term as a, as a means, it's a changing, it's a turning, it makes total sense. And so as you see it used throughout Scripture, it's referring to this idea of turning from what you were and going towards something greater. Hence these signs that are up here that I'm going to be using throughout the rest of this sermon is that the understanding of who you are as a human being is probably the most important thing in your journey towards being made right before God. You've heard it said in society in fact, they even build their ideas of philosophy based on this, that man is inherently good. If you give man the opportunity with the collection of good men, they will, are inherently good and they will always choose well. How's that working for society? Well, you know, what's interesting is that 
Now, that idea of inherent good in man is being bought into by the Christian church, and now the collection of mankind, the, the majority rule, to helps us understand what Scripture is actually saying. So we're now to interpret Scripture based on the idea that man is inherently good, and instinctually, collectively, we can decide what Scripture is actually saying which what has happened as a result of that is Scripture has been completely distorted, and as people have gone on down the line saying you can't really make these meanings out of it, they've just all together just said, now it's just a good book, and you have to be careful what parts you take. What does Scripture actually teach about the character of man? Is it inherently good, or is man naturally depraved? Depraved. And, and, and that's not too hard to consider. I mean, you could take the best among us and you're going to discover that we're depraved. We are naturally inclined to self-centeredness, all of us. I mean, it would be embarrassing for any of us to have our life played over the last week on the screen for everybody to see because there would be moments that you could see, wow, that was pretty self-centered or that was pretty rude or that was malicious. None of us would be clean or feeling good if our life was put on the screen. We are naturally, inherently, and born to be selfish. Now, God didn't create us to be that, but when mankind fell in the garden, when Adam and Eve chose the sinful path, it forever marked you and I with the curse of sin. So when we begin our lives, all of us begin here. Again, if you think that society doesn't, what should I say, doesn't disagree with this, then think about this. Tell me a funeral you've gone to where every person that died wasn't said of them they were a good person. Everybody dies a good person. doesn't matter how wretched of a life they live or how selfish of a life they live. I have actually been a part of funerals where the last act of the person was criminal and horrifically criminal. Try doing that funeral. But yet, testimonies came of how good a person they were. See, we want to lie to ourselves, and we want to lie to each other because if we can do that, then our hope is not found anywhere else. If, if we believe that we're inherently good, then the hope is found in mankind. I personally don't want that because I have not found a single human being that is worth putting my entire hope for within regards to any future that I might have. We all begin here. Scripture says this, very simple. Romans 3.23. All have sinned, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, including Mary, which would be blasphemous if I was in a different church, but even Mary was a sinner, which is why the virgin birth was so important. It's so that the sin seed was not a part of Jesus's life and his seed of coming into being. He was born of the Holy Spirit through a virgin and therefore sinless. It's an important attribute, an important understanding. The book of John, John, one of the apostles, the one who was assigned by Jesus to take care of Mary, said this statement. He said, if you believe 
that you have not sinned, you are a liar. Okay, this is John who was assigned to take care of Mary post the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, please take care of her. She is now your mother. He is taking care of her. And he says, if anyone thinks that they are without sin, they are a liar. If it was true that anybody walking at that time was, was able to say, no, I'm not a sinner, he would have given the exclusion. But he didn't give it of his own mother. So we all begin here. And it also says in Scripture, Romans 6, 23, that everybody who has had sin, which then means everyone, that wage of that sin, what we have earned because of that sin is death. That's a separation from God. And what God says is that when we die on this earth, which we weren't intended to die, when mankind was originally uh, created, it was, we were created to be eternally capable of living here on this earth. But because of sin, death came as a penalty. Now we have a limited time on this earth, but there is still an eternity that is awaiting for all of us post our death. And so therefore, as a result of that sin, each of us have earned death, complete eternal separation from God, because we've earned it. Nobody here can claim to be without sin. All it takes is one sin. And I'm confident that, that nobody here can say, well, I've, I've sinned less than five. You know, I can count my sins on one hand. That, yeah, maybe so since yesterday. <laughs> there is not any, I mean, there's some good people in this room. But I am telling you, none of you are that good. Now, there are, again, some very good people, people I trust very much in here, and, and this is a good group of people, but we're all sinners. We all start here. And as soon as we can acknowledge we're not inherently good, but we all start here, then you start beginning to ask the right questions. Where then, if this creates judgment for me, creates a separation for me from God, and means that I am eternally condemned in separation from God in a place called hell, it's, it's a real literal place in Scripture, which again, today's modernists and churches are now saying that's not a literal hell. Because again, the masses ruled and said, no, that's not possible. God couldn't create something like that. But yet God is the one that initiated the concept. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. So there is a literal place we have to be concerned about. So if you're standing here and you realize, I am not inherently good. I am actually a sinner in need of reconciliation to God. Then our hope is not inward. It's over there. It's towards God. And so what repentance says is it acknowledges the condition of yourself. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. And then repentance says that I turn my back on that and I aim towards God. I am in need of a complete transformation where, where it's not just an inner thing, it is an outer thing as well. It's the full being of myself to turn towards God. Spurgeon made this comment. He said, true repentance is the turning of the heart as well as the life. It is the giving of the whole soul to God to be his forever and ever. It is the renunciation of the sins of the heart as well as the crimes of life. Amen. Inner and outer. It's not just thinking differently. It is thinking differently and saying, I need to 
be changed. I am in need of the work. Then this problem comes in. It's like realizing, but I can't do the work. I, I'm, gonna, I'm still stuck here. I, I want to turn my back on it, but I still fall into sin. So I can't make myself right with God. And we're going to get there here in a moment as to how repentance then actually plays itself out in salvation. You've heard this term, you must be saved. It's given by Jesus himself. You must be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal punishment from God. And God himself is the one that wants to save you from that punishment. And so how is it then that repentance plays a part in salvation or in moving a person from here where they're stuck in their sins and separated from God to here where they're part of the family of God and seen as righteous, holy, and good because of the work of Jesus Christ. Again, we'll get there. Now, to understand this, under, this idea of repentance, it is not just a New Testament Matthew through Revelation concept. It actually was rooted in the earliest stages of Scripture where God is saying that from the very beginning at the fall of mankind that he will create a bridge. And then he gave means. We even saw the means by which they were reconciled when Cain and Abel were making sacrifices. They recognized they're sinners. But then one sacrifice was riddled with pride. The other sacrifice was riddled with humility. And then we have the first murder between brothers, Cain killing Abel. So this understanding of repentance was already there, rooted in the very first generation of children after Adam and Eve. But I would say that the, probably the greatest description in the Old Testament of this idea of turning your back on sin where we're marked and we're inherently stuck there and where we need to go towards God, the best definition you'll see in the Old Testament is found in the book of Isaiah, and it'll be on the screen here in a moment. And it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and let them uh, and, and forsake the unrighteousness of their thoughts. Thoughts, inner. Ways, outer. So already in the prophet Isaiah, he is describing what it means to seek the Lord. It is to turn your back, turn from this, repent, and go towards here in both ways and thoughts. Now, to bring it to the New Testament. And we're about to do something, again, I rarely do. We're going to go from Scripture to Scripture. We're going to be turning in Bibles. And, if, and again, don't, don't just stay with me, but I feel like by you going through page to page or flipping on those errors, you realize how consistent the theme of repentance is without, throughout Scripture. So we begin in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And it says this, In those days, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner before Christ, he's the one preparing the way for the Messiah, Jesus, coming. And, and so this John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, has come near. Now, this message you're going to start hearing in repetitive scriptures. But I want you to pay Particular notice that after he says repent for the kingdom of heaven, the next part is a part you're going to start seeing changing. And 
excuse me, and, that, and it comes from this idea that the kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ coming. And so as he comes, it's getting nearer. And you're going to see the language of how nearness is being described with this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So now, turn one page over to Matthew chapter 4. This is a passage that um, Luther actually quotes in the very first uh, thesis of, of his 95 Theses. So here we go. In verse 17 of chapter 4, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So now it's near. It's not coming near. It is now near. And so Jesus, with his own mouth, has said that. Now let's turn to the next book, Mark, chapter 1. So it's Matthew, Mark. Mark is a very short book. We're going to be in the first chapter. So Mark, chapter 1. And we're going to read in verse uh, 17, but we're going to start in verse 14. So keep in mind what's going on here, a little context. Jesus is being accused by some very righteous people who saw themselves as already being over here, not in need of repenting from anything. They had declared themselves righteous. They were living out uh, a very holy life. They were fasting more than anybody else. They were fasting longer than anybody else. They prayed longer than anybody else. They prayed publicly with the long prayers to impress people. They were the most righteous ones, and they were ticked off at Jesus because Jesus hung out with people who were sinners. And, and the sinners were tax collectors. They were prostitutes. They were people that were known of having bad reputations. And they were also people like lepers. And lepers were perceived by those who were righteous as being sick because, because they had sinned. A leper is a leper because they had sinned more greatly than anybody else. And so why would the righteous people hang out with them? They're the condemned ones. They're the ones that, that are sinners worse than I. And, and so Jesus is hanging out with them. And, and so he's being accused by these righteous ones who think they're over here. So then he says this. Why, or the tax collectors say, why does he eat? End of verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. You see, the righteous people aren't waiting to listen to a call. They think they've got everything. The sinner knows he's sinning. They've been labeled that. So they know they're in need of something, and so they're calling out for help. And so Jesus knows that they're the ones that are ready to listen to the message of the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones that are ready to repent, not those who think that they are already healthy. Continuing on into the book of Luke, it's the very next book after the book of Mark. You won't have to turn very far. But in Luke chapter 5, Jesus still speaking. So we have John the Baptist who's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You have Jesus saying, uh, with, right after that saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And now you're at this passage in Luke, Luke chapter 5, verse 31, 
where it says, Jesus answered them again, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but again, I have come to call the sinners to repentance. So he's affirming again. But then look at chapter 13 of Luke. So he repeats the same message. Then he comes into th chapter 13, and this one is particularly special. Let me give you a little context to this one. In Luke 13, the context is this, is there's this place uh, near Jerusalem called Siloam, and it, was, and it had a pool at the pool of Siloam, and people would come there to dip themselves into this pool because it was told that if you can get into the pool, you will be healed of whatever infirmities you might have. Well, then, who are the people that are coming to the pool? Is it the Pharisees coming to the pool? No, they're, they're healthy. They're the righteous ones. They are not need, they're not in need of any kind of healing. Who are the ones coming to the pool? Sinners. People with leprosy, people with sores on their skin are coming into that water. And so it's a gathering of people who are labeled as sinners. Guess what happens? There's a tall tower right next to this pool. The tower falls, and the people begin to accuse those who had the tower fallen on as being deserving of such death. So let's read the story. Now there, in verse 1, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans, who, by the way, the Pharisees thought were second-rate citizens anyway, all right, so it's Galilean sinners. So do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they had suffered in this way? Jesus said, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too all will perish. So who's he telling to repent in this case? He's telling the righteous person, you must repent. The one who thinks they're all right with God, the one who is fasting more than any other, the one who's living by the highest standards of biblical teachings, but they also didn't think they needed to repent. So while they seemed so close, they were actually so far. To the point where when this tower falls, they pre presumed a judgment. Those people are more wicked than anybody else. That's why the tower fell. And Jesus clarified that no, they were not more evil than you. Are they more evil than any of the other people in Jerusalem that, that the tower didn't fall upon? You too will perish like them unless you repent. Now, is that teaching inherent or understood in our day where possibly some people can think that when something bad happens to somebody that, they're, that they are, must have been more evil than another? Let me take you back to 9-12-2001. Think the date? The day after 9-11. What were the TV preachers saying at that time? There were two of them in particular that said something that was very profound but also very unbiblical. He said, and I should say they said, that those people in New York have died because there is more wickedness in New York City than there is anywhere else. They've died because of their sins of sexuality and their teachings and so on, and that is why the tower has fallen upon them. 
Now, it is true there are people in New York that can teach some pretty awful things, but it's also true there are people in Lidditz that can teach some pretty awful things. It is true that, yes, there were wicked people in those towers that died that day, but it is also true, it is also true that there were righteous people that died in the towers that day. There were people who knew Jesus, who had repented, who had died that day. So who are we to say that they are more wicked than we are, that they perished in that horrific act that day? See, Jesus is drawing a line saying, listen, our role is not to presume who's more righteous and not in need of repentance than another. We're all in need of repentance because we all start here. We all start with a condition of sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And to think otherwise, John, the, the, the caretaker of Mary, says, if you think you're without sin, you're a lying to yourself and you're lying to other people and you're lying to God at the cost of your own soul. So Jesus didn't pull any punches that repentance is at the front side of faith. The apostles, in Mark chapter 6, verse 12, it says that the apostles were sent out by Jesus and to go and preach the good news. This was the first time they were sent away from Jesus to preach. And it says that they went out and they taught and preached a message of repentance. So the message that Jesus gave the apostles was uh, of repentance. Now, few uh, books later in the, book, in the book of Acts, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. So post the resurrection of Jesus Christ, post his death on the cross, post Jesus telling the church that he's going to send the Holy Spirit upon the church so that the power that was within Jesus will now be upon the church so the lives can be changed. Post all of that. What was the message of the church? Acts chapter 20, and you guys got there ahead of me. I got to get there. So Acts chapter 20, verse 20 and 21. This is Paul, who used to be a Pharisee, used to think of himself as being here, used to think that he was the more righteous one, and therefore all of those who are teaching about Jesus, who says that you're in need of confessing your sins, you're in need of repentance, you're in need of trusting in his work to become reconciled with God, not your own righteous acts, that same person who killed people to eradicate that idea is now saying something completely different because he himself has discovered the need for Jesus. So let's look what the Apostle Paul says. You know, Paul speaking, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would help be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly from house to house. I have clear declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must return to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So the message of Paul in, in, as part of the early church was that both Jew and Gentile, we are teaching them to repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean then to have repentance being described as a, as a way of reconciliation to God? What is the teaching of how one becomes saved? Now, it is clear that repentance is part of salvation. Some will say, no, 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 no. That becomes an act of man. You're doing something that is in your own flesh, and, and that's not so. It is merely just faith alone. 
Well, here's the problem. Faith has many descriptors. And one of those descriptors of what true faith is, is repentance. For instance, we know the scriptures that says that there's a celebration in heaven when somebody is saved, right? We know there's a celebration. Who's celebrating? Angels, right? It's, it's okay. I'm asking for a response. So angels. And, and, and they're celebrating where? In heaven. It's okay. You're a little shy. In heaven. So it says that when one person gets saved, that there is a celebration in heaven by the angels. But what does it describe as the person who's being saved? It says that, that in heaven, there's more celebration over one sinner who repents than over any other who thinks they are righteous. We often don't know the rest of that piece. We, we know about the celebration that when somebody comes to Christ, that there's a celebration in heaven. We know that. But we often don't realize the descriptor of how they, they came to Christ was that they repented. They were a sinner. They recognized where they stood, and they turned, and they looked towards God, recognizing their need for salvation. Now, to make sure that we have this clear, that this isn't a works-based faith, but it also, according to the concerns of Luther, isn't also easy believism. We're going to go through some scriptures here to make sure we understand clearly how salvation happens. So I want us to begin in Ephesians chapter 2. So keep going to the right, but not very far from where we're at in Acts. So in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 8 and 9. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and it says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Okay, so this text teaches. We are here. We start here, which is sin. We all have that inherently within us. We have the curse of Adam that happened in that garden all these centuries later, right here within us. At some point, the news of the good news of the gospel comes to our ears, and we realize our sinful condition. And by grace, a gift given to you and I that we have not worked for is given to us when faith is birthed inside of us. That is a gift from God. The fact that we have faith at all to believe that there is a bridge from sin and a sinner's life to the righteousness of God is a faith-based grace-given idea. And you need to see it as the cross. The cross becomes the bridge. Jesus hung on it as a, as a sinless human being who did not deserve the death penalty, but took it on so that he could once and for all cover the payment of sin so that the sinner can be made righteous when they turn and they look to God and he does all the work. He, gets, he does the work to cause their head to turn. He initiates in them, I'm a sinner. I now turn. I see this. And then he does the rest of the work by grace, giving us that faith that we can walk in and trust that the work of Christ is sufficient. Nothing else is needed to be accomplished. The work of Christ is sufficient. So I cling to this, and I move towards that. So by grace, this gift given to believe that as a sinner, I can be reconciled to God. 
So faith is crucial. We trust in a work that we cannot do for ourselves. There is no boasting in this. Man is not capable of saving himself. It is purely by the work of Jesus Christ and the love of God who made it all happen. So now, in our understanding, let's grow this a little bit more. So turn to the left a little bit in your scriptures to Romans chapter 10. So salvation's by grace through faith, so that no one can boast. Now, let's, this is the passage that kind of describes then the process, if you will, of how a human being literally crosses from death to life. So Romans chapter 10, we're going to actually start in verse 8. But what does it say, referring to Scripture? The word is near you. It is in your mouth, and it is in your heart. That is this message concerning faith that we proclaim. Okay? So the writer of this is Paul, and he's saying there's a message of faith we've been proclaiming. Now he's going to describe the message of faith. So what is the message of faith? Because again, keep in mind, salvation's by grace through faith alone, not by works. Nobody can boast. So this message of faith is being proclaimed. So how does this faith come about that saves you? So verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it was with your mouth you profess and are saved. And the scripture says that anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Okay, so now you're hearing that this message of faith talks about belief. Well, let's unpack this because it's really important to think a little bit beyond the surface. The demons believe that each of us, including them, are sinful. They believe that wholeheartedly. They also believe that it is required that you need to understand that you need to turn from that. You need to turn your back on that and look to God. They also believe that God is the only means by which he can even walk across. He provides it through Jesus Christ. They believe that as well. They also believe that God loves you. They believe that God is providing a way for you. They also believe that Jesus Christ's gift of salvation through his work on the cross is sufficient. They believe that as well. They also believe that he rose again on the third day. He, they also believe that he ascended into heaven. They also believe very powerfully that you and I can be filled with the Holy Spirit and be able to live a life that is being transformed by the work of God through his Holy Spirit. And they believe all this, and they believe that when you die, that there is two places that you can possibly go. You can go into eternal judgment, or if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life because the work of Jesus in your life and the gift of faith, that you can live eternally with heaven. The demons believe all of that. Where are the demons going? Hell, okay? So what's the difference between a message of faith that talks about believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth, the difference between that kind of belief and the belief that saves? It's the term repentance. Now I want you to turn to the book of James. This is the different qualifier that will change everything. It's our understanding of a faith that truly saves. Again, not by works. That's already been told. This is not an act of you. It's an act of God. So here's what it says. Starting in verse 14 in the book of James, which is again at the end of your Bibles. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. And then I say, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You're saved by grace through faith. Believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confessing with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead. I'm sorry, I flipped that. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You believe that. But the difference to know, the, say, the difference between the belief of the demons and the belief of somebody who's being saved is the issue of the result of transformation. You could see the true faith. The person who truly has said, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I turn to look to God and I plead for your help. God then extends the cross to me. I am able to walk across this and find salvation by grace and faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Not by my works, but by his works only. And when you have faith there and you've repented and turned, guess what happens to a person's life? Action begins to take place. Transformation takes place. Somebody that just merely says, I believe that, yes, I'm a sinner. I believe that, yes, there is God. Yes, I believe that Jesus died on a cross. Yes, I believe that he rose again on the third day. I believe the whole story. But I'm not going to surrender to it. I'm not going to have faith in it. I just can't get there. Even though they believe in the story, the difference between that belief and a saving belief is, I'm a sinner, God. Pull me over. Walk me across the bridge. I'll turn my back on this and I'll turn my face towards you. That is a faith that is showing that somebody is being changed. Jesus said this, you'll know those who are my disciples by the fruit of the tree. Amen. If they have fruit that is good, then you know they're coming from a good tree. You'll know the false ones by those who claim to be a part of the tree, but the fruit of their lives don't match up. Now, I'm not called to judge somebody's salvation. I'm merely it's being taught by Jesus to say, listen, a true faith is alive, and it changes both inwardly and outwardly which is why Luther was reacting to this idea of easy believism, saying, and the trusting in the work of the clergy is basically hogwash, is where I grew up calling it. And so the clergy can't provide anything for you other than guidance and pointing to Jesus, rather than coming to God themselves and seeking mercy from him and seeking grace from God alone and turning our back on the path of sin's destruction. Then you know God is at work. Let's pray. So God, I just ask that if there's anybody here that has bought into this idea that I just, I believe, but there's been no 
acknowledgement of surrender of life, no, no trusting truly in the faith by walking and letting Jesus carry us. God, may your convicting spirit draw them to you that they can, they can experience the saving work of your grace today. And God, for those of us who truly are the children of God here in this room, and, and yes, we've given our lives to you, but we've been letting sin be at our door. God, work in us that we may repent of those sins so that we can continue to be transformed by the renewing work of Jesus. So God, work in this church now, I pray, in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. So Father God, we're thankful that you lavished your love on us, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. We hadn't earned a single thing in that moment, nor have we since, but yet, out of your mercy and your grace, many of us are walking in the freedom that comes by the Holy Spirit and the lives that are being changed every day. So God, I just ask that if there are any of those that are here in this room that have never experienced the life-transforming work of your Spirit, that they would not walk out of here today without surrendering their life to you and repenting from their life of sin and aiming towards you and pleading to the mercy of your heart. And so God, move in that way freely in our midst. But for those of us who are in you, may we walk afresh and anew, trusting in the work of the Spirit, not living according to the former patterns of our flesh that we may experience the joy of your transformative work. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.